Yo estoy lista para Chacolina. So ready for y también. A mí también. A mí también. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Today, we're going to talk about iconic places to visit for natural wine or for classical music. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Are you ready to travel? Yes, are you? I mean, if there's wine involved. <laughs> there is, and great music. Awesome. Um, are you ready? Yeah. You feeling good? Yeah, yeah. All right, let's do it. So we decided on iconic places that some of which we've been to, some of which we have not been to in the world of classical music and the world of wine, especially natural wine. Most of the places that I'm going to talk about, they have built a reputation on natural wine. Uh, for those of you that are going to start traveling, hopefully later this summer or into the fall and probably into the COVID-filled winters, um, you know, hey, wine will at least reduce some anxiety. I don't know. <laughs> classical music, hopefully, too. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to talk about two famous places that people go hear music, neither of which are here in the United States. So get your passport ready. And I might add one that is in the United States in case you don't have a passport. Great. I mean, and that is not to say there are dozens, dozens. upon dozens of fa fabulous halls here in the States as well. We, we have two wonderful halls right here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. So, But I'm just going to focus on a couple different ones, yeah. And I'm, I was thinking, should I talk about all the international, not all, obviously, but international wine bars that I've been to in France and Spain? And I was like, well, this is going to be a six-hour episode. Joe, <laughs> I, I, get to, I get to a lot of wine bars. So I thought maybe let's just let's start domestic. I'm doing the opposite of you. Okay. Uh, let's start domestic, and we'll maybe do another show at another time about Great. international destinations. Where's our first stop? So the method to my madness, keep it simple, we'll go from West Coast to East Coast. I figured we'd start in California because there are so many great wine bars and natural wine bars in California. And the reason why I'm specifically highlighting these cats is because I've had wines that I specifically remember. They have very iconic natural wine lists. They also have very knowledgeable staff, great wine lists. So cool. first one, Terroir, San Francisco. I was turned on to, gosh, I can't even tell you how long ago it was. Luis Antoine Lut was one of the first natural Chilean producers. We've tasted his wines once on the show. And another was this producer called Beluard out of the Savoie, who is, he champions this really rare grape called Gringue. And Gringue, you know, I mean, Beluard's not 100% natural. He does filter some of his wines. Um, the thing with Terroir I remembered is the staff, they're just kind of stuffy about it. <laughs> and it's something that like natural wine shouldn't be known for, right? Like natural yeah. wine, you kind of like pe people take the stuffy out of wine and they just kind of get back to like, let's just drink it and have fun and learn. Yeah. And every time I've been to Terroir, I've just had like asshole servers. <laughs> but but their knowledge and, you know, they're very like, you know, hey, poor taste of this, poor taste of that. They just kind of don't have time for you. But gotcha. they are, you know, they 
give you great knowledge and they yeah. do talk to you about stuff. So I don't I don't mean to like poo-poo them. I would definitely <laughs> say go to Terroir, <laughs> drinks a lot of great natural wine, have fun. That's the first one on the journey. Nice. Should I just keep going with California? Yeah, Maybe sure. A couple more. Sure. The Punchdown across the bay in Oakland. A guy by the name of DC Looney and his partner Lisa Koshta. Um, I traveled with them to the Republic of Georgia a few years back. It's grown into one of the best lists in the entire state, if not the country. Wow. They champion Georgian wines. You can drink Georgian wines out of Quevery, I think. Well, maybe not now during COVID, but um, <laughs> maybe you can. I don't know. Uh, they're just, they're great people. They have a huge passion for wine and for drinking wine and just enjoying. And um, if you're ever in the Bay Area, it's like worth worth it to ride a bicycle like cross the entire bay to go to Ordinaire. <laughs> I just wanted to, wanted to throw that out there. Nice. So the last time I was in California, I was tasting some sherries, had long days, doing a lot of trainings with staff, and a friend of mine was like, so Jill, where do you want to, you know, do you want to go to this place called Ordinaire? And I'd heard a lot about it. I'd yeah, obviously seen the list online like 700 times, and I was like, yeah, let's go. And I walked in. And it is a natural wine wonderland. Bottles everywhere, bottles on the floor. You can buy stuff to take away, but of course the list is long. Uh, by the glass, they open things for you to taste and you know serve it by the glass. I had great service. Um, if you're if you're in San Francisco, you should not not go to Ordinaire at least for a, a few glasses. Any more California? Um, yeah, there there are so many, but I figured you know just to save some space for I mean New York, we this, that's a six hour episode in and of itself. But I will mention <laughs> for those of you who really like beer, um, obviously there's plenty of craft beer bars and breweries and all that stuff in the Bay Area and in California. But if you like esoterica and beer, there's a McKellar beer bar oh, that nice. is in San Francisco and obviously pours a lot of McKellar beer. But there are tons of guest taps, mm-hmm. and I remember there was one day that I had been tasting cherries all day and I was really tired. I didn't want wine. I didn't want to hardly even drink. And I went in there and I it just happened upon the McKellar bar. I was like, what? <laughs> and had a had a really nice just couple sides. But then they had this beautiful sour cherry McKellar beer um, that was brewed in Denmark. It was like $14 for like less than eight ounces or something. Wow. And it was every penny worth it. <gasps> great, great bar. Lots of cool things that you won't try maybe anywhere else in the world because they nice. have a lot of access to great beer. So, Well, those are three great reasons to go to California. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's honestly like <laughs> why, I go, why I go anywhere. It's <laughs> kind of scary. I love that. What, where are we traveling to listen? I mean, let's go to... A place I've always wanted to go, which is in Vienna, and it's the Musikverein, which is a concert hall in Vienna that was uh, built in the 1860s, late 1860s. All I can say about the Musikverein, there are so many things to say about it. First of all, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's basically like a shoebox. That's what the building is kind of built like. It's just a long rectangular building. But it was built by a Danish architect. And what's funny is the next hall that we're going to talk about, too, which is halfway around the world, was also built by a Danish architect. Mm-hmm. And you were just talking about Danish beer, which is crazy. But anyway, go Danes. Go Danes. Um, so the Musikverein in Vienna uh, was built by, and I don't know if it's Theophil Hansen. It looks like Theophil uh, Hansen, Danish architect. And uh, he started building it in 1867. 
And it, it's still to this day managed by uh, basically a society of um, musicians, just a, like a collective of musicians in Vienna. It's called the Society of Friends of Music in Vienna. And they've had very famous members of the society and very famous artistic directors, one of whom was Johannes Brahms. So Brahms was uh, the artistic director of the Musikverein in Vienna from 1872 to 1875. So it's just a couple years after the building is finished because it got finished in 1870. So, and then Brahms was artistic director. Brahms really didn't fancy all the paperwork and administrative duties and stuff, so that's why he didn't do it for long. But uh, what a neat thing to have Brahms run this this building. And as a result, they have quite an archive in a little Brahms museum inside the Musikverein oh, that houses uh, a bunch of his archives, like scores. They have manuscript scores. They have letters and, and cool stuff like that. That's so. awesome. There's a When you look at the outside of the building, too, and the inside of the architecture, it looks almost like oxymoronic because it seems like it belongs in that city. Yeah. But it comes from um, this the architect, actually the joint work of the architects, but the main architect, like, had this um, passion for Hellenistic, yeah. like, or very um, kind of Greek-centric classical mm-hmm. architecture. And so when you look at the outside, it it's it seems like it fits and it's exactly how it should be, but there are definitely homages to like early Greek yeah. architecture, which is really ends up being just absolutely perfect mm-hmm. for the space. Yeah, it's it's just so beautiful. The There are several halls uh, within. There's um, five or six or seven different They've been like reconstructed, right? Through the Some years? of them, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the Great Hall or the uh, Golden Hall, they call it uh, sometimes. The the main hall, the one that seats the most, is literally like gold. I mean, it's just so there's just gold everywhere, and it it it's like I feel like I normally am really turned off by that. Like it's really gaudy, but it's mm-hmm. so beautiful, and it's like simple gaudy. Because yeah. it literally is just like this long box, and it just I, I just find it so beautiful still. It's really fun to look up pictures, and just it's just stunning. Yeah, and, that's cool. And it's such a small, narrow space, too. It seats about 1,700 people, and then there's room enough for 300 more people to stand. So uh, we've pack heard— them in, Pack them in. Pack them in, and they do for those New Year's Eve concerts. Now, I don't know if you remember, but back in uh, December, January, we did a New Year's Eve show— and every year there's a famous concert there. So we've even on this show heard music recorded in the Musikverein. And that's what we'll do right now. We'll hear some of Brahms' music that was uh, recorded by an Italian conductor in the late 80s. So let's hear um, just a snippet of his fourth symphony because what Brahms did things on a large scale and also did things beautifully on a small scale. And uh, his symphonies tend to demonstrate that Uh, dichotomy. So uh, we'll listen to a a little bit of uh, the second movement of his fourth symphony. hearing live recordings of orchestras mm-hmm. because 
there's so many tricks that you know you can do in a studio and I just love the idea of a giant unit like that playing together so beautifully in a, on a live stage. decided to um, well we didn't decide together like I have a few favorite parts of this movement yeah um, and, but I maybe I'll leave people in suspense to tell them because I'll do a comparing and contrasting if you will of this symphony this movement with another concert hall I love Brahms so much it makes me want to blow up why did you choose this as opposed to other movements? I really just picked this one because it's, I just love it. But um, it, it's, see, you can hear this really small, like little woodwind thing happening mm -hmm. right now with clarinets and the strings are pizzicato in the back just very lightly. But then he, Brahms has the ability to call forth like so much power from an orchestra and he does that a number of different times in this movement in this symphony in general, but um, there's just some such tender, touching, beautiful power in this symphony at times. And it just, it, it makes my heart ache. It's so beautiful. Here's um, one of the parts. <laughs> oh, this is one of my favorites too, right yep. at three, like three minutes to 3.30. just builds, it's just building. One thing I do want to mention for folks, because I think that this is one of, you know, the, the thing about this place is it's so famous for its architecture, its history. Mm -hmm. you know, it's acoustics. Bra yep, well, that's what I was just going to say was, yeah. um, you know, Brahms, his um, participation in it, you know, just the plethora of people that have belonged to that organization but yeah the acoustics it's one of the three best supposedly best places to hear mm -hmm. music in the world which yeah. is like incredible it's incredible to me and, and i mean it literally can bring tears to my eyes just thinking about that how how gifted those architects were to mm -hmm. be able to create that you know i mean it just it blows my mind because i mean that Acoustics, I mean, that stuff. That's physics. That's like that's math. Spatial, that's spatial. That's just, yeah, that's, that's all the things. It's being able to hear stuff and know numbers. And that's definitely not me. So, but God, what a great. We'll hear more. We'll hear more of that because there are more things I could say about. I kind of barfed it all out super fast, but we can slow down and talk about some more cool things about the Musique for Rhine.
I'll kind of breeze up the West Coast and then get over to the Midwest. And I, I am negating, you know, there are a lot of natural wine bars around the country. There, you know, there are a couple in New Orleans, uh, but there are some really awesome little spots in like Maine. There's a couple of cool places in Seattle, but I, I, I don't know why I just picked, I picked some favorites. So Oregon, there's a really cool place called Dame and um, they have great food, but their wine list kind of goes, it, I think it kind of morphs, you know, depending on the season, of course, but like there was a time where they were really obsessed with Georgian wines and then there's a time where they're obsessed with something else and they just have a really great, it's a very small space. So if you go at remotely busy times, you're going to end up waiting, but great, incredible service, just a, a really cool cool vibe um, that's in, can't remember what part of Portland, but it's not like downtown Portland. Okay, cool. And then let's just very quickly get to Chicago because now we can drink wine. Yes. <laughs> um, so I brought a wine that is, you know, we say, we're saying natural wine, that these are places for natural wine. And the wine that we're drinking today is, most of my natural wine friends will kill me for saying this because it's, it's verging on natural wine. Right? We're using native yeast to make the wine you know, but it is in a temperature-controlled environment. There are vintages where it's filtered. The carbonation of this wine is natural. Um, but the reason why I chose this is not for its, like, tell me about all the, you know, virtues of why this is natural. Mm -hmm. It's because this brings me back to a place where I was just starting to learn about organic wine, about dynamic wine, and natural wine at a wine bar I was working at. Mm -hmm. So, bottoms up, let's drink some... Chacolina. So this is from a producer, Amistoy. They are out of north northern Spain. And this is, that's okay, it's meant to be spilled a little bit. Um, <laughs> this is from, they're in the Basque country. The region is called Guetaria. So we're about an mm, hour away from San Sebastián or so. And this is made, it's their Rubentis, which is their rosé. It's a brand new 2019 vintage, super fresh. And the grape here is called Onda Ribibelza, which is like the red grape in Chacoli. And well, it's a scores and pours. Scores and pours. Shut up, chill, drink wine. <laughs> Emily's drinking out of a, it out of a wine glass. I'm drinking it out of a tumbler because I've had this wine 400,054 times. <laughs> like, also, we broke the other wine glass. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other reason. <laughs> but I, I feel like if I were to blind taste this, yeah. I could I could smell it. You could smell and it and no. Yeah, it's so amazing. I worked at a wine bar called Webster's Wine Bar and we weren't we weren't a natural wine bar at all. Now when you look at it online um, in Chicago it says, you know, Chicago's first natural wine bar because it gravitated towards that. But when I was there, you know, it was mostly organic and biodynamic was what we were really kind of learning about at that time. Um, natural kind of came a little later. But what was great was we had a staff that to this day all still collaborates in different ways, keeps in touch. Um, we were like a small family. And this was like our crew house wine. <laughs> like we would have it by the glass and this would be everyone, this is what everybody wanted as their shift drink. And this is what at the end of the night when people are like, we should go in on a bottle of wine. It was usually something educational. Mm -hmm. And then it was followed by <laughs> Amistoy uh, when it was in season. And we would put it in porrons and we would like drink it from the roof of the building. And like, it was always like part of debauchery. There was like yeah. bottles of Rubentis or Amistoy around. What I love so much about Webster's is it gave birth to a different wine bar. Two, actually all three people that were working at Webster's 
went off on their own and opened a bar called Rootstock. To this day, it's one of the best burgers I've had in the country. Wow. Um, great homemade pastas, great food. But um, Jamie McLennan, he does the wine buying and the beer buying. Um, Johnny Happ is uh, another owner along with Tanya Pratt. And the three of them together have created a really small, very intimate space, super friendly, and a great list that that has a lot more natural wine on it than not. And they would probably all not argue with you if you were like, <laughs> do you have Amistoe somewhere? Is it one of your favorite wines? It's um, amazing. It's delicious. Yeah, it's super, and I can't wait to chat more about the wine, but um, just to finish up Chicago quick. Rootstock, you go kitty corner, and there's a place called Café Marie-Jean. People start drinking at Café Marie-Jean at 7 a.m. <laughs> it's open late. Not not past, I don't think, 1 or 2, or maybe it's midnight, but it serves all types of like comfort food. You can get brains, and you can get the best breakfast sandwich of your life. <laughs> Homemade biscuits. You, they have great salads, um, like really bountiful portions. It's kind of hilarious. Like I usually sh- share something when I go there. But um, what's great is it's uh, J- Jamie from a, from Rootstock decided to open this bar that's like open all the time. You know, you get great coffee and a couple of just little tips because Chicago's close to us here in Minneapolis. If you go there, something I love getting after a night out, which is every night when I'm in Chicago, is called the Dubs. Zero. And it's a cider that has been distilled till it's a hundred proof. And it is incredible from this producer called Cyril Zangs. Now, if you want the real treatment, you get the dubs dub zero. And that's okay. a bottle of cider, small bottle of Cyril Zang cider. Yeah. With this distillate on the side. And just all the problems will be gone. The stomach ache will go away. <laughs> goes great with your food. It might set you back 20 bucks, but you're just going to really say thank you, Jill. <laughs> so um, Webster's uh, still around and Rootstock and Café Marie-Jean musts if you go to Chicago. Oh, yeah. There's also oh, – I can't believe I forgot this place. Red and White is a wine shop. I won't talk about Red and White. They have a little sister restaurant that the name is eluding me because they actually changed it. But it's right next door to Red and White off of Milwaukee. Also, and it's in a totally different neighborhood, but great for great places to explore while you're in Chicago. Amazing. And they feel like home to me when I go. So that's, that's delightful. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. I can remember the last time I was in Chicago and it has not been in this century. So <laughs> it's been a while since well, I've you, been to you're Chicago. Due. I am due. I'm due. I'm sensing a show idea. Live from Chicago. Oh, that'd be oh live from Rootstock Wine Bar. We could go see the Chicago Symphony. Whoa. Mm. Okay. Show idea. Road trip. Spoiler. So I just wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the composers that were a part of the Musikverein, if only so that we get to listen to some more Brahms. Because <laughs> <laughs> that movement that we listened to, the second movement from his fourth symphony, it's, it's pretty long. It's like more than 10 minutes long. And there's, it's just so beautiful. There's so much wonderfulness to listen to in that movement. So, of course, Brahms, artistic director from 1872 to 1875. Uh, Brahms, by the way at the time was in his 50s, so or 40s, I guess, uh, almost. He was born in 1833, so 40s, just about, and had not yet even published his first symphony. Uh, it took Brahms 
ages to write his first symphony. He was just racked with anxiety about it because he was so convinced that Beethoven, and he was not the only one at the time, convinced that Beethoven was the epitome of a symphonist. Like, no one could beat what Beethoven did with the symphony orchestra. Like, no one could surpass that. And so he was really, like, stressed out about trying to write a symphony because he didn't think it would live up to Beethoven. So, uh, but then his four symphonies that he wrote came out in fairly quick succession after he finally did publish that first one. So that's kind of fun. Uh, He published his fourth symphony in 1884. Some of the other, as I mentioned, I wanted to talk about some of the other composers and musicians that were a part of this society that runs the Musikverein. Uh, It is important to note that the Musikverein, even though it wasn't built until uh, 1870, the society that runs it, the Society of Friends of Music in Vienna, started in the early part of that century. So, for instance, Beethoven was a part of the Society of Friends of Music in Vienna for the last couple of years of Beethoven's life. Beethoven premiered a lot of works in Vienna, had a pr- fairly turbulent relationship with Vienna, but toward the end of his life, it got a little friendlier. Um, Anton Bruckner was a, a member of this uh uh, society and and did work at the Musikverein. Gustav Mahler, who we've talked about on the show before, Franz Liszt, um, Schubert, Franz Schubert was actually denied membership, but eventually was a part of the society. Uh, Arthur Rubinstein, very famous pianist, uh, well known for being a Chopin interpreter. Um, the conductor Herbert von Karajan, who was a tremendously influential 20th century uh, conductor. And obviously... Johann Strauss, who we've talked about before, Mm -hmm. because that's the music that they play at these New Year's Day concerts. And so Johann Strauss was very active at the Musikverein. And the list goes on and on of just notable composers, master composers, we would call them, uh, that that were a part of this society. So it's, it's pretty neat. And let's listen to some more Brahms. beautiful woodwind writing. Just such a gentle beauty. And it sounds so good in that hall. Mm. But I wanted to talk a little bit more about the contrast in power and how he can create something beautiful with power as opposed to troubled. And do you think that that's accentuated by the music verein? You know what I mean? Just because if the show is about the place, that must give it just a little, just the smallest amount more of dimension than another great hall.
that moment, I love that that moment. How he he can draw forth his power in a in a joyful way. It's not it's not like a negative power. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like here's the full force of this orchestra in all its beauty, as opposed to in all of its you know. Um, maybe fear or ferocity, you know? Well, do you mind? I don't, I don't, I think we definitely have time if we want to listen to 30 seconds of the Requiem because you mentioned maybe not listening to it, but we have time. So why don't we? Yeah, I mean, I thought it would be nice to hear a little choral music in the Musikverein as well. Um, It's, it's pretty amazing to see, like if you see a picture, especially of something like um, what we're going to listen to, we'll listen to a movement uh, from, the Requiem that Brahms wrote, which is a special piece that hopefully we'll highlight more of someday on Scores and Pours, because rather than being in Latin, like 99.9% of any Requiem that's ever written, uh, it's in German. And so it's called a German Requiem. And it was, I I don't know if I would say shocking that he did that, but it was unusual because a Requiem is a mass and it's a mass for the repose of the dead. So you know, mass is in Latin, right? Mm-hmm. Not German. So yeah. um, so there's that. And also uh, he used text from the Old Testament, which isn't as common to do either. Uh, so yeah, um, this is just a beautiful example of what a choir sounds like in the Musikverein. And, and I wanted to say too that when you see a staging of something like this in the Musikverein, they pack them on there because the stage isn't, it's like I said, it's a long, narrow hall. They they can't make the stage bigger. You know what yeah. I mean? So, I mean, they really <laughs> squeeze the choir in <laughs> behind the orchestra. It's really crazy. Um, but boy, does it sound beautiful. So let's hear some of this. Plus, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of music that anybody ever wrote in the history of the world. It's fact. And it sounds better when you're pouring chocolate from up on high while you're <laughs> listening to it. This recording we're hearing comes from 1987. Same conductor, an Italian conductor named Carlo Maria Giulini. And yeah, live at the Musique for Rhine, 1987. jump from Musikverein to this wine. Do it. So we can talk a little bit about it. So I poured it, when I was about to pour it to accompany the Requiem, just because why not pour wine for a Requiem, I put a little cork in to pour it from called an escanciador, which allows for you to pour it at like a 90 degree angle. It's parallel with the ground and you're you're getting it in a, on a good day. You're about, you know, three to four feet glass from the from the bottle, mm-hmm. the the spout coming out, and 
You may ask why. It really enlivens the effervescence. I'll show a picture of it. I'll include a photo from when I was 14 years old doing this back when I couldn't drink. Just kidding. <laughs> I was like 24 or something. Um, but so you can see what escanciador, a lot of chacolis like a little real enlivening of their effervescence, especially mm. if it's a natural effervescence. And so that's why you pour it from on high. Um, what do you think of the what do you think of the wine? Oh, it's got a little spritzy spritz. Oh, it's so delicious. It's like fruity and ripe and acidic and bubbly. But not super bubbly. Not mm. like bubble it's like vino verde bubbly, right? Like just a hint of spritz, yeah. right? The Spaniards called that auja when it's just like Yeah. It tickles. You know, it's more than like the natural wine tickle. You know? Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. It's not not definitely. You can see like carbonation in mm -hmm. it, but it's not like a full on sparkling wine or lambrusco right. or petnat or anything like that. Right. Um, right. Yeah, it smells really minerally, like like raspberry seeds. You know, it's like just got lots of red fruits, but like mm -hmm. really almost unripe red fruits mm -hmm. and seeds, which is really fun. But very fresh fruits. Yeah, the palate is. Um, bone dry and really salty, uh, which is fun. The A lot of the people will say that the salty nature comes from the sea in this region. You're right up. This vineyard actually is right on the Bay of Biscay. And when you, when you are at the property, I mean, if you fell the vineyards and you tumbled, you would land in the ocean. <laughs> so literally when, when, you know, there's condensation, over the sea, mm -hmm. and that moves its way inward towards the Iberian Peninsula. Where does that rain on the vineyards? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. seawater raining on the vineyards. And any geolo um, geologist will tell you that is impossible. And and especially like biologists, they'll say it's you can't taste sodium in your wine because of seawater. And I'm here to tell you, as a non-scientific person. <laughs> I can taste sea water <laughs> in this wine. <laughs> well, you went through a very measured explanation of how that can be possible, and I in our episode about the sea, and yeah. I was convinced. Thanks. It takes one. It <laughs> takes one to make it fat, people. You just need to convince one other person. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna should I blow through some other? Yeah. Do it, please. All right. And what's cool too about um, so Chacoli has a. This area has been known for wine since about the 1700s. Chacoli, there's a lot of kind of controversy of where that name came from because it's so, you know, looks kind of very foreign to Spanish, which the Basque language is. Chacolina roughly translates, they think, to wine of the household. So there usually aren't Chacolis that are like so complex, they're going to like blow your socks off like $7,000 Bordeaux that you need to sell her for too long and then is roasted and toasted and whatever. <laughs> anyway, so that's a quick aside about the wine. Back to wine bars. Yes. After Chicago, we're going to travel east. There are some pretty cool places popping up in Ohio. Um, I know, crazy. Weird. Philadelphia. I went to a really cool place in Philadelphia. I know where it is. I just don't know what it's called. They said <laughs> it's the place without a sign, go downstairs. <laughs> So you're in New York, and where are you going to go? If you look up on the app for natural wine, Raison is the name of the natural wine app. There are like seven gazillion natural wine bars in New York. It's annoying how many there are. Yeah. And, you know, you only have so much time. Let's face it, our livers can only handle so much. At least that's my problem. Mm -hmm. And so I really need to be strategic about how I'm going to go and how much I'm going to drink. And you have to go to Ten Bells. Okay. Ten bells, you can go and spend $200 on a bottle of natural wine, and they will give you 
little four ounce glasses, like tasting glasses mm -hmm. that you use in the most humble of French cellars. <laughs> and that's what you drink everything out of. And it's great. <laughs> um, I've been to 10 Bells. I'm not going to tell you how many times. And every time I go, the list is every bit as like great, if not better than the last time I was there. Um, staff is really nice. You know, it's got kind of this like dingy vibe because it's been there for so long. It was literally probably one of the first natural wine bars in the United States. Wow. And they've always been dedicated to natural wine. Like it was because they loved it and yeah. they didn't give a shit if people weren't going to love it. Yeah. Um. So I'd highly recommend 10 Bells as sort of like an homage to... Four Horsemen is really cool. If for those of you who like uh, LCD sound system, the one of the front men for that band, um, James Murphy and his partner, um, and then a couple other people that are in the industry came together and created the Four Horsemen. Every time I've been to the Four Horsemen, I drink right away. I eat in like three hours, unless you know someone. <laughs> like it's like you always there's a wait. The food is really good, um, but the wine list is. Fantastic. I highly encourage you with all of these places, BTW. It's just hard to know what you want, right? And for me, I want everything. Yeah. So if you want to go there and ask for a Pinot Grigio, they're going to look at you weird. But what's fun, you can say, I'm, I'm exploratory. I might want this or that. Take the list and just run your fingers through it and be like, oops. It's like when you go and do credit card roulette with your friends and you go out to dinner. Who's paying for dinner? And you just – and you point – and sometimes you're going to get a $40 bottle, and sometimes it's going to be 280 But I guarantee <laughs> you it will be a fun exercise <laughs> in finding something new. And the Four Horsemen has a really beautiful, leather-bound, great wine list. Bur everything from, like, Burgundy that mm -hmm. they kind of have to have to, like, really small production, esoteric stuff from little-known regions yeah. of France. Yeah, yeah. Uh, June Wine Bar. June Wine Bar has got a really cute little intimate patio June. in the back. June. That's Emily's kitty, um, by the way. <laughs> and uh, June, kind of like Terroir, has a little bit of a stuffy staff. Okay. But they've got a great list. And it's concise enough. We're making a decision. I mean, it's ample, but it's it, like Terroir. There are places that can be overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and like 10 Bells can be overwhelming. You go in the list by the glass, you're like... There are a couple places that they have a hundred glasses to offer. Yeah. And where are you going to start? Right. Um, and June makes that pretty easy. Last but not least, Roberta's is a pizza place that's really close to an awesome wine shop called Henry's. And Roberta's has one of the like most perfectly curated wine lists for some of the most serious pizza in this country. <laughs> Sides, like you just want to like, I, I actually was on a layover of three hours and decided to leave the airport to go to Roberta's <laughs> to drink wine and eat pizza to go back because I was like, I just can't <laughs> wait to go there. And um, the staff is super fun, super friendly. It's a very like gay friendly environment. And it's just, I like had a ball. So anybody that wants uh, like a night out on the town and pizza and maybe too much of all the things go to Roberta's. So, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I'll, I'll finish up with one last one, but uh, let's let's get to some more music. All right. Let's talk about the Sydney Opera House. This is in Sydney in Australia, New South Wales. 
it's it's a beautiful place. I'm sure you can picture the Sydney Opera House. It's it's an icon. You can even build the Sydney Opera House in Civilization. The video game. You know what I mean? It's it's an iconic. Uh, there are man-made 3D puzzles. Wonders. There's yeah. It's it's a big deal. You can picture it with the shells. One of the, I've you know clearly never been there. Never been to Australia. Always my whole life. Forty three and a half years on this planet. Assumed it was white. Just white. Mm-mm. It's not. It is two colors, people. It is two <laughs> colors. <laughs> and <laughs> if you look up close to it, there's two different color tiles that make the Sydney Opera House. It's fa- fascinating. I just had no idea. I got a text from Emily this morning that said, I feel betrayed. Yeah, I've been lied I just to. Found, and I found that, I thought that way when I found out that peanuts were legumes. Because yeah. they're like, sometimes you feel like a nut. And we didn't ever realize, like, sometimes you don't. Sometimes like, you legume. Yeah, yeah, and that's what. So I feel. I, I, yeah. I get you. I get yeah, you. it was it was shocking to see the up close picture of it. You're just like, oh, what? <laughs> but it's a it's a beautiful place, uh, much like the Musique Verein. And let's be honest about a lot of performing performing arts complexes. There are multiple halls at the Sydney Opera House, but the main hall holds about 2,600 people, 2,679 seats in the main concert hall. So that's a decent size. That's they get Maybe a, a little bigger than average. They get 11 million visitors a year. It's That's insane. Like insane. I mean, obviously, if I ever went to Sydney, it wouldn't even cross my mind to not go. I mean, I would definitely go for sure. I mean, it's this huge complex on the sea, which is beautiful. And and I mean, it's like it's it's on 4.4 acres. They actually say it in hectares. Which they do 1.89 <laughs> or something, something like that. Like that. <laughs> Dude, the thing was, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. But, gonna... but yeah, it's just also designed by a Danish architect after a competition. They did a competition search, and it took years upon years upon years for them to do this search, to choose the winners, to do the designs, to do the thing, to start the construction, to blah, blah, blah. And finally, in 1973, it opened. But I think in the 50s is when they started the process what that I they decided is, to build it. What I think is funny is, at like so many projects in in life, yeah, they came in with a budget of it's going to cost seven <laughs> million dollars, and it costs like over a hundred million yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And then they're like, it's only going to take uh, four years and change. And then it took like oh, it took forever, shy of 15 or something. Yeah, but it is a UNESCO. World Heritage, it's on the list of important mm-hmm. places if you're mm-hmm. into UNESCO and, like, very historic places, even though yep. it's not that old. Right, um, yeah. I mean, it's not. It's less than 50 years old. Dude, it's speaking almost of, 50 years old. Speaking of those tiles, you mentioned the color. Yeah. How many? There are over a million tiles. And they're, like, from Sweden, I believe. So they are from Sweden, which is... Yet again, another big expense to <laughs> let's just put a million tiles on a plane and put them on an opera house in sydney it's amazing <laughs> who's paying that bill uh, the australian lottery yeah by the exactly way. <laughs> the australian lottery exactly so one of the special things about the sydney opera house uh is the organ that was built for it and i'm talking about a pipe organ right pipe organ that's been around since like 300 bc or some shit organs have been around forever <laughs> and the, the organ in, at the Sydney Opera House is the largest mechanical tracker action organ in the world. It has 10,000 pipes. So I tried to look up what tra- what tracker action organ was, and like three sentences in, I'm like, nope, 
Nope. So did you happen to glean well, any? Of course. Of course. Thank you. So how does a tracker action The easiest work? way to explain this is a tracker action organ is it's making mechanical links between the keys and the pipes, but in a way that is, in this case, it's extremely lengthy. And so you, every time you push down a key, say, it, it activates a stick that goes upwards. And then that, think of like when you see these ridiculous people set up like a maze for a marble and yeah. it travels all over. Like that happens about six different times with different, whether they look like little dolly rods and different mechanisms that in the end end up allowing for it shifts a board that allows air air to go in yeah and, and through the pipe yeah and and but very precise so actually with something like this you have more precise measurement you just need to know how to do it yeah if you're trying to you know think of phrasing and think of punctuation as it were is technically it's more difficult, but it's more precise with a track organ than it would be, or track action organ than it is with, say, a piano or a okay. electric organ or yeah. something like that. Well, there you have it, people. And we'll, we'll include a really cool – Duke University has an awesome video that, yes. like, specifies. And this, this awesome guy talks about all the different – like, the, what the is mechanics, cool about, yeah. about the track action organ, but the mechanics of it as well. Neat. So – Beautiful. I'm so glad you found that. I'm here for you. So let's listen to this organ. Because, I mean, first of all, there are hundreds upon hundreds of concerts that happen in, at the Sydney Opera House. Uh, there are numerous um, organizations that call that call the Opera House their home and rent space there or whatnot. Um, a ballet company. There's theater that happens there. Obviously, there's opera that happens there. There's orchestral music. Uh, they have pop concerts there. Uh, it runs the gamut. So, um, yeah, there's a little venue for for just about everything. So let's hear some of this organ, and we'll hear – this is a pretty famous organ piece from around the same time that Brahms was uh, on the scene, although uh, Charles-Marie Vidor is a little younger than Brahms. Uh, we'll hear a movement from Vidor's Symphony for Organ Number no. 5. What I would urge you all to do as well is to please watch the YouTube video first because you may hear, I know some of you may not be into like organ pieces like this, like pipe organ music, but if you watch that video and how intricate track action organs are and how many different sounds they can create, and then you know this is the one with the longest like pipe action, track action in the world, you're going to listen to it, and instead of being like, oh, that's kind of cool, you're going to listen to it and be like, ho -wo. <laughs> So the pipe organ has its whole own story and its own history and its own like following and its own little cult around the world because, as I mentioned, pipe organs in some way, shape, or form have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's insane, the history of the pipe organ. And 
therefore there's just you know they're made in different ways and you know they're not portable right of an organ like this isn't anyway and yeah. so they just all have these stories and these great uh pieces of music written for them and i mean it's it's an interesting thing i mean there's i will give a shout out to uh an old colleague of mine from Minnesota Public Radio named Michael Barone who for many many years had a show called Pipe Dreams which uh it was all about pipe organ and the man is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge about the history of this instrument and he's played them all he's been to see them all and it's just it's it's a remarkable little carved out area of classical music kind of like when i think of classical music as a whole there's like okay all of that but then there's pipe organ there's when you, when opera you- yeah. You know, there's, but then there's pipe organ, you know, it's got like its own place. It's so special. And when you look at images of the, you know, the Sydney Opera House, it's like front and center. Mm-hmm. All the pipes yeah. are like up in people's, they're able to see it, you know, which is beautiful because yeah. sometimes they're in the back and and they radiate yep. forward and yep. their sound radiates forward. So yeah, it's, it's super, super beautiful to see. I, uh, just a little tidbit that's ridiculous, but a little glimpse into, you know, I mean, people like to get to know their hosts and whatever. The first time I ever heard of the Sydney Opera House, I was like, I don't know, maybe six. Yeah. I don't know. I was really young. And there was, if anybody remembers Facts of Life. Oh, yes. They had a movie and part of it, they went to the Sydney Opera House and like Joe and Tootie were like lost in the, the opera house. They were trying to get, I don't even remember. I just remember that wow. I was like, oh, that's a beautiful place. And wow, that, those are big. That's, I, I knew about pipe organs because no, my dad sure, plays sure. a piano on the organs. And I was like, oh, wow, that's a big, mm-hmm. just facts <laughs> of life. I don't even remember what the movie is called, but it was kind of great. Before I talk about the last place, yeah, out of even more places to go visit for wine, yeah, I thought about playing a little something special um, for all of you and Ms. Reese. Love that. Okay, so we listened to before uh, we listened to Brahms Symphony Number no. Four, and I mentioned a part that I really loved, like right around the two fifty to three twenty mark. Oh, it's so much. And. I found a really beautiful movement that was recorded. It's the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And I wanted to make mention of a place that competes with uh, um, Musikverein for acoustics. So also one of the top three in the world, thankfully, here in the United States. Closer for us and less expensive to travel (laughs) to. Uh, Construction here was completed right around the turn of the century. So 1899, 1900. It's considered a U.S. national landmark. And so I wanted to just play back-to-back, if you don't mind. No. Boston Symphony Hall, Symphony Number no. 4 from Brahms, Movement 2.
and then revert back to the music variety. Slightly more rich, just a little bit in the music for Ryan, like a little it bit. Is. Now, remember. They tune differently. They tune differently. They also have different instruments, the yes. Vienna Philharmonic yep. does, particularly in the winds, right? Yep. So the clarinets are shaped different, or have different sized bores, and the brass as well. It is warm. Okay, let's go back and listen to the Boston yes. one more time. Yes, yes. great. I don't want to choose which one I like better. <laughs> They're just so great. <laughs> it's all so good. And granted, yes, we have a different conductor and we have, you know, the different, so we have yeah. to, those are all controls, right? We can't, yeah. we're not only listening to the difference in mm-hmm. place, but. Yep. Um, I love that symphony so much. <laughs> oh, man. So with that, let's go to Vermont. Yeah. And the reason why I mentioned Vermont was I spent some time there making, um, helping a really cool, a uh, really cool producer make some cider, and you know getting to know some of the natural wine that was happening there. And I was like, where do you guys drink? I mean, it's like forty five minutes to get anywhere. Yeah. It's like inhibits any sort of like you know you got to be careful. Yeah, you just gotta you know you only can have a glass or two of wine. Yep. And they were like, you should go, take your time, eat, walk go to the lake and enjoy Burlington, Vermont, and go to a place called Daedalus. Okay. I was like, okay, Daedalus, obviously named after a Greek, Greek god of mythology. And there's a, it's a really cool, like, little market that has a lot of wine, but attached is a wine bar. It's not exclusively natural wine, but they champion a lot of natural wine and, you know, local success stories like Deidre Heakin and La Garagista and Krista Scruggs, um, which, you know, if anybody's going to get their wine, which their wine sells out everywhere, it's going to be Burlington, Vermont. It's going to have their wine. Um, so if you're ever in the area, there's plenty of good places to eat there, but make sure you stop by Daedalus. It's a really cool cool place to, to drink and eat and then buy really great potato chips to go. I love that. Wow. I mean... Should I escanciarte some more chacolina? Please. That sounds weird. I'm just going to say it. Debo de escanciarte más chacolina. Si. Okay. As the Basques would say... Onegin. Onegin. Onegin is cheers, Onegin, and to scores and pours. To scores and pours.
Thanks for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We're also on Instagram at scores and pours. Listen up. <laughs> Where I get countless Instagram messages, emails. Oh my God, love the show. If you like the show, mm-hmm. consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours. You can do so for as little as $1 a month, by the way. You can be a patron of the show. Or as much as $100 a month. As much as your little heart desires. Edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.